Netflix here for several months and where people are kind of regaining and re, 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 resupplying and, you know, what are, you know, uh, refreshing or whatever you want to call it, you know, and, uh, you know, so you got about till October, I think somewhere in there, if, if there's going to be any large maneuver. So that I was going to tie that off for you. Thank you, June fan. Um, and B, your hand is away. Hey, just something really quick again to just back off um, something that I think it was Ryan that said about writing to like local government representatives. Um, so I, I wasn't expecting to get any kind of response back from my local government representative because he has now just been elected our prime minister. So I figured he was going to be pretty busy like doing other things. And I'm sure that that's absolutely the case, but I did receive back a really lovely personal um, response from one of his team who, um, you know, even came back and talked about some of the things that I'd said about my family background and why I was so invested in what's happening in Ukraine um, and has um assured me that my information has been passed along to like a senior international security advisor to be considered so whether anything goes anywhere from there or not you know i i really didn't expect anything to come back considering you know that this human is now running the whole of australia um he's still got people who are making sure that they're taking the time to look after the people that you know, voted him in locally as well. So I just wanted to give that as an example of, you know, you don't know until you try and then you never know. Follow <laughs> up on that. Now. Thank you. No, you're fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Follow up on that. Keep interacting with that person. I managed to get in touch with uh, the legislative assistant for one of my congressional representatives and uh, and was lucky enough to have about a 30-minute window of time with her and may or may not be uh, engaging with the representative themselves in the near future. But it's because I've engaged with that legislative rep in the past for constituent services, and I have a personal connection with them. So it, and, and no personal connection before now other than legislative assistance or constituent services. So as as small as you may think you are, you can engage with people and you can make a difference yeah absolutely and I mean you know I've I've gone back so you know I left it a couple of days and you know exactly what you said I've, I've worked in business for a long time and I kind of know how to to play my game a little um but you know I went back and said you know I really appreciate you know this personal touch and you know that you've obviously you know taken into account the personal things that I've told you about why I'm invested in this um, and then went back and said, you know, there were a lot of things that I talked about in this letter, but for me, there's, you know, these three main points now, and it's please supply more weapons, please, you know, we need to label Russia as a terrorist state, and um, we need a free trade agreement for when this is all over. So I said, you know, outside of everything that I said, if, if none of the other things get touched, these are the three things that I really, really want. So, Yeah. We'll see. Thank you very much. Liberal, go ahead. Hey, Ryan. Thanks. Um, hey, V. Um, so I had uh, just a follow-up. I think June Fan was referring to uh, Rasputitsa or the, the winter thaw. But um, I had a question for Patrick. Um, Lissy Chansk, I always seem to be drawn to like um, what I feel are like um, very important points in the order of battle. Um it looks like the overwhelming force of the Russians, although Lissy Chance has a 200 or 300 foot elevation advantage, it looks like they're pounding it to, you know, the Severodonetsk level. And I think at some point we'll see the Ukrainian forces fall back. Um, do you do you have um, a perspective on Lissy Chance? Uh, I do. You know, as June was mentioning earlier, they've essentially got it surrounded on three sets. Now, on two sides of that, you know, there's there's a river that's going to prevent direct assault, at least direct assault, with any kind of ease. Unfortunately, that does mean the Russians can stage artillery within range on, on at least three sides and just bombard it into hell, into oblivion. I suspect they will try to do to Lysychansk exactly what we did to Monte Cassino. And just, because it, you're right, it's an elevated strong point. The Ukrainians have quite a few troops there. Uh, a lot of them are light troops. 
some territorials, uh, the 115th, the 112th, the 111th are all there. In addition to, I believe, the Georgia Legions in the, in the area. And there's some Donbass Irregulars and a few others. But they've also got a couple of, of very solid uh, regular units. Uh, 30th, 30th and 24th Mech are both there. They've also got uh, some security troops and some air assault guys. Uh, probably some Marines, given some of the on-the-ground on reporting, though I haven't seen anybody officially uh, label them as being there. So they've got a, a good mix of guys. And assaulting that position is going to be casualty-intensive. It's something the Russians are going to want to avoid. So I suspect that they will use massed fires just the way they did in Sverdlanesk and try to blast them off that hill. And they don't care. They will flatten it. And I, I said this before the war. The Russians weren't going to care about civilian casualties. Um, and everyone was a little bit horrified. This is the way the Russians wage war. They will try to blast those guys out of there. Um, right now, it doesn't look like, and this could change tomorrow, I hasten to add, the Ukrainians are going to give it up without at least some kind of a fight. And that's probably smart because as soon as they do, th that, that pullout is going to have to happen very, very fast before the Russians can react to it. And it's going to let them across the river on two sides which means that pocket is going to have to form a line of resistance, you know, to their south and west. And it's going to have to do so without a, a geographic barrier to help. Them. So it's going to be tricky and it's going to, it, it could get ugly if it's not done right. And they have significant fortifications. So I imagine they don't want to abandon those, you know, without at least putting up some kind of a fight. But that is, like we said, it's a cauldron. It, it's a way to just pour fire in and dead bodies will come out. And the Ukrainians cannot afford that kind of battle. The real danger is that they penetrate to the south and west and cut them off, which if I were the Russians, that's exactly what I'd be trying to do. Uh, I'd be trying to come through uh, 118th and 131st territorials area. I'd be trying to penetrate probably east of Severus and cut and cut off that entire sector and then I'd surround it and I'd crush it if I'm the Russians. That that would because I if you're the Russians, you need to kill the Ukrainian army. Taking territory they figured out didn't work. Assaulting the capital didn't work. It didn't break the back of Ukrainian morale like they thought it would. So at this point, you got to kill the Ukrainian army. And if they're smart, and evidence says they may or may not be, depending on who's in charge, that has got to be a concern. I'm, I'm sure the Ukrainian army knows this. Uh, so we'll, we will just have to see what they do about it, whether they think they can hold it, whether they think they can break out of it. I, I Personally, I doubt that. I suspect we will see some level of fighting and then probably a controlled withdrawal. If they choose to hold it, they're taking a big risk. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I think the goal is to attrit the Russian forces, knowing that you have a safe fallback position and um, wait for Western armory to work itself up so that, you know, there's a counteroffensive in a couple of months. But thank you, sir. No problem. Our favorite card carrying, Corey Colby. Thanks, Ryan. Good evening, everybody. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that uh, the previous speaker from Australia mentioned. Uh, forgive me, I didn't catch her name. Um, she had mentioned free trade with Ukraine. Um, and this is something very, very important uh, that I don't think has been discussed too much on the space because uh, it's still a little far out as the war rages. But we do talk about what comes after. This is something very important um, for when the war is won and Ukraine is victorious, um, that Ukraine needs trade agreements with uh, Western countries so that they can rebuild their economy and we can get Ukraine's uh, commodities back on the market. Ukraine has wheat. Um, Ukraine has other valuable natural resources. They have the neon gases, which are so critical for the production of semiconductors. Um, which the United States and other uh, countries are looking to uh, invest in that field to diversify supply chains. Um, and obviously, uh, inflation, particularly in, in foodstuffs, is very rampant right now. So it's, it's very important to get uh, Ukraine's agricultural products back on the market um, and uh, to eliminate all barriers to trade and investment um, in their economy. So this is another thing that um, our listeners should be thinking about uh, when they contact their elected representatives in their respective countries. Ukraine obviously still has a very immediate and dire need for military assistance, um, but we also need to think about um, economic and trade policies that uh, we need to have passed in our countries 
uh, for when the war is over so that we can um, help uh, the Ukrainian people rebuild their country. So I will say that Zelensky himself, even within the first few weeks of this war, was discussing a post-war business, trade, and investment deals with foreign countries, especially all those who are helping in the war. That is a big part of the push for why Ukraine is looking to join the Eurozone, which would immediately give it a massive free trade zone with all of Europe. So um, for sure, I am with you on the need for free trade agreements with Ukraine. But the good news is the Ukrainians are 100% on board with this. They are way ahead of the curve, given that they're literally talking about free trade deals while 20 plus percent of their country is occupied by a genocidal force that is rebelizing cities. Um, I will say that if you try to think about long-term investment, exactly how a peace goes down makes a very big difference. If due to battle, diplomatic, whatever conditions, they're forced into one of these bullshit Neville Chamberlain appeasement peace treaties, that's going to be really problematic for long-term investments because most of the world is going to sort of expect that Russia is going to come back and try again in a decade or less than. This is the second major push Russia's had into Ukraine in, in eight years. This war, this is the second phase of a war that started in 2014 when Russia came across the boards. And if you think through, hey, what makes a business want to invest? The concept of Russia sending a bunch of cruise missiles at malls, heavy industry, light industry, etc., is not very appealing. Um, this breaches the need for safety and security um, which is a precursor to major investment. So 100% Ukraine is on board. President Zelensky is looking for free trade. Ukraine itself as a country has applied and moved forward with trying to get into the largest free trade zone in their neighborhood, the, the, the EU. And the biggest impediment for U Ukraine uh, in rebuilding right now is is the being in the middle of a horrific fucking war, pardon my French, and the thing that we give them the fastest and best resolution for the most possible trade and money making would be heavy weapons that can lead them to blowing the Russians back to Russia, where Russians belong in their own country. They have a country. They can go live there when they're peaceful and not trying to genocide somebody else's country. And then Ukraine can get back to rebuilding their country, which they very much want to do. They want to clean up their streets rebuild their factories, rebuild their malls, rebuild their houses, rebuild their apartments, rebuild their coffee shop. And the way that you get the most money in to do that and the best investment environment is by winning this war as quickly as possible so that all the Ukrainians can get home. One third of their population at this point is either displaced or not in the country. That's insane, right? Like you want to talk about a business environment? There is no economic model that says you can do well in that kind of situation. So they need to win the, they need to win the war. That is the sooner, the faster, the better, the more powerful the win is. All of those things will lead to a better post-war investment and trade environment for the country. So I hope that that answers your view. Uh, but also if you ever see me here and see me up, see me speaking at all, uh, or just want to PM me, I love talking about all things finance, Ukraine and Russia. And this is sort of my my thing as it were uh so if, does that answer your question or thought colby wasn't a question but uh thank you finance gurney see your hand hey. is raised, sir. yeah all right thanks guys um i'm gonna push off here in a little bit but i, I thought i'd leave this just just parting words this this isn't in regards to any of the i don't think we've had the any of the immediate conversations but um just just talking about information trying to understand uh what we think we know on the ground and and i'll you know <sighs> There, there's whether whether we have a bias that we understand or, or we don't know. Um, I'll, I'll just point out, you know, that that there could be confirmation bias occurring or selection bias or a couple different things. But just just to put it out there, right? If if you search for something, um, if you seek for it or you search for it and you interpret that information and you bring it back and you recall it, 
in a way that supports what what you already believe. Um, that's what confirmation bias is. And, and, and the reason I'm saying this, and the reason this is my, my parting words for the evening is, is so um, if if anyone in general is, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about um, Lee Shishansk and, um, and Severodonetsk, um, you know, surrounded on, on three sides. And it, it, you know, it does not look good. No qualms there. I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. Um, but the reason I mentioned that in the same breath as I mentioned confirmation bias is because, for instance, uh, in my Twitter feed today or in conversations in, in different places I've, I've had today, um, if I look to a situation in Izum, and Izum uh, right now is currently surrounded on three sides, and the main ground line of, of communication, the MO3 and the P79, uh, the only one, because the Oskil River is is not fordable, so their backs to a river, uh, is is ten kilometers from Ukrainian lines, and the Ukrainian M triple sevens are hammering their their single line of communication. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this with Severodonetsk and in the same breath is confirmation bias is because sometimes we point ourselves in directions we want to look, and then we confirm that and and confirm the information. Uh, but I haven't heard much talk about a similar but different situation. They're not the same, but uh, if I look at Lisi Shansk and, and Severodonetsk and I wanted to confirm, you know, things might not be going good in that area, sure, I'm, I'm going to find that. Um, but I'm also going to overlook where things might be like that and are also not going good for, say, the Russians. And and, and I'll leave that those parting thoughts here because um, there is a pocket. There are three sides to a Zoom at the current moment. Um, and the Ukrainians... Um, are hammering in on, on that supply route to Izum. So I would like to just point out the fact that we should look outside of our own biases to seek information uh, so that we can all get a better understanding of what's going on on the ground uh, and that, that we make this space great with conversations like this. So thank you, gentlemen, uh, and good night. Thanks, Thanks Spirited debate, and we're always um, cordial with each other. We don't do the ad hominem shit here. And I think we're all tugging on the same rope, even if we differ in some of the ways we get there. In fairness, I try to find subtle ways to insult Axel on regular occasion. But uh, outside of that, no, we don't. And uh, I'm pretty sure that would be a really quick way to uh, drop anyone down. Uh, it would be to start <laughs> ad hominem attacking people. Hey, Patrick, Fox is in the space. Uh, I would encourage any listeners to... Um, Feel free to come up and ask questions. Yeah, this uh, this guy got a lot of training courtesy of the U.S. taxpayer, and we should put it to use even if he's no longer serving his country. Thank you for your service, by the way. I don't think I've uh, gotten a chance to do that in the past. Uh, no worries, Ryan. Uh, we did bring hey, Jane. Hey, sorry. June, go ahead. Hey, Patrick. Hello? So, let, Jane, let, one let second. Get being... Yeah. Uh, June, go ahead, and then we'll go to, back to Jane. No, let her go. Let her go. Ten for okay. or Jane. Thank sorry, <laughs> I'm getting. I'm sorry, uh, I I didn't hear you. You um call me. Um yeah, I just uh, wanted to uh, bring up that I had read this thread from uh, General Hurtling and talking about why he didn't think patriots, you know, that patriots are a bad idea, and that um instead he um the, they're sending something called NASAM. NASAM, uh, because it's easier to use, less complicated in equipment and capable of shooting down some, not all incoming missiles. But um, I, I do know that um, Zelensky has in the past talked about having a much better um, security regimen in Ukraine, like including the Iron Dome, you know, which, which he approached Israel about. So, um, Anyway, I thought that was an interesting thread where Mark Hurtling was talking about why it wasn't a good idea to have patriots and iron domes at the moment. And for me, my I I feel like, you know, previously one of the speakers was saying that, you know, it's about the genocide, stopping the genocide. And I agreed with that. But um, that isn't the way that whoever is in charge <clears throat> is um, choosing to go. I tend to feel that the nuclear threat angle is, uh, I see it discussed about 
80% less now in all discussions. And it seems like people are not as frightened of that um, and so are open to other interventions, including NATO. But anyway, um, so I just want to put that out there about the Patriots and I was wondering if anybody had an opinion about that, about not using Patriots there, but using NAFAMs instead. Uh, briefly, I'll just give a quick response. And if somebody else wants to tie in on the back, they can, because I don't know a whole lot about NASAMs. Uh, Patriot missiles require a pretty steady supply chain behind them and would almost definitely require American contractors, if not U.S. service personnel, to keep them maintained up and running. It's not something you can just park somewhere and uh, not have to reload, for lack of a better term, and all of that operational capability does not exist in Ukraine. Those anti-air systems don't tie in with the current Russian radar equipment that they have in country, so it would probably be a little more complicated than it is beneficial. Um, I also think Patriot missiles are pretty pricey, um, so if they can send something else in that is more cost-efficient, and I'm not trying to downplay this to a dollars and cents situation. I'm saying if they can send more equipment in for the same amount of money that is effective and more easily integrated with systems that are already in country, that might be a better option. Um, you got to train people to operate a Patriot battery or you have to send people over there that already know how. And that's some of the same uh, bottleneck situation that we're having with HIMARS is we can't send two dozen HIMARS into a country where we only have eight or 10 people that are capable of operating it. We've got to get boots on the ground that know how to work the equipment before we can turn people loose with it. So we don't just have it sitting somewhere in a field outside Lviv uh, waiting to be struck by a cruise missile coming out of Russia. Uh, and I will yield the floor to anybody else that wants to respond. Patrick? Well, let me just add one thing for you to respond to. I'm just reading his final tweet in this thread. And he says, um, because they are uh, patriots are point defense weapon systems. He has point defense in capital letters. He doesn't, you know, and then he says because they're expensive, they're difficult to deploy and very, very large. But he uses the term point defense, and I'm not clear uh, what that means. I don't know if, if any of these smart guys know that. I would defer to Patrick on this, and I have not read Mr. Hurtling's or General Hurtling's uh, thread, but I think what he's referring to there is uh, like a specific point, like we would deploy those to defend the U.S. embassy and anything we tracked on that particular trajectory we would shoot down, but it's not an area defense weapon. Like we can set it somewhere and protect the whole of Kiev or protect Kiev and Lviv or protect a whole oblast or, you know, a, a province within yeah. Ukraine. It's they're more intended for a precise target and they can uh, laser something down specifically, but they're not fast enough and responsive enough. And they're so expensive that we can't blanket the whole country with Patriot missiles and expect a, a, an effective defense. Uh, it's it's just not cost efficient. We'd smoke through more money and we have more effective systems available. And I'll let Patrick go. Uh, you've got a lot more. Uh, this is more of your wheelhouse than mine, for sure. Thanks, right? Well, with the caveat that I am not an air defense artilleryman by training, and and General Mark Hurtling is an excellent follow. Uh, if people are interested in this, is career army officer, very very bright guy. I, Jane, from what it sounds like, I think Brian's probably right. the The Patriot is semi static, so what you want to do is put it somewhere around a very high value target and let it defend that target. And as Ryan says, it's got about a 60-mile range, so it's not something that it can cover a huge area. It can cover a significant area, but, you know, not massive. And I, further, I think Ryan is right. You'd have to deploy entire batteries, complete with their own acquisition radar, their own tracking system, all the stuff that comes with a, a, a modern air defense battery. And you'd have to have American contractors manning it while training Ukrainian crews exactly like what the Soviets did for the North Vietnamese when they were shooting at our bombers. Uh, you could do that, sir, and it might pose a significant threat to both Russian missile and aviation assets, but again, it's a risk. Uh, and if other, again, if other systems can 
supplement that shortfall. And I'm not sure that we're sending them in sufficient quantities to supplement that shortfall yet, which is a secondary. Uh, yeah, I mean, to make Patriot effective, you'd have to send it both in quantity and with enough people to man it in the initial stages who weren't Ukrainians, which currently is a risk that nobody's willing to take. Patrick, you are always yeah. on. Wow, that's really helpful. He, he does say that uh, Patriot systems do not intercept every enemy launched missile, which some people might think. I don't think any. That's true. Uh, they were pretty good against uh, Iraqi Scud and a few other systems, but no, n- no system is foolproof. And you mentioned uh, Israeli Iron Dome. The Israelis have said that they will not export. Uh, they have to get U.S. permission to export, but they have said on their own that they will not do that. So I, I doubt we'll see that in the conversation going forward, just as an FYI. Right. I'm just wondering after the war, it, because Zelensky was speaking also about making it, how to make the country secure when you're next to Russia. And I wonder if an option after the war. I certainly don't think that's out of the question. Yeah, post-war, I I think that that will be a priority. Whatever it looks like, whether it's Iron Dome or something else, uh, I I, I think they will make a number one priority, beefing up their their domestic air defense net. Absolutely. Sorry, Ren. No, you're fine. Well, yeah, I think, and that's the other thing you're talking about commerce, you know, after the war, looking at how their sky, you know, skies are completely vulnerable. Um, I think that's going to be a hard sell until, you know, Russia's some other thing than it is now, or I don't know, because it's so rich with all the incoming possibilities. Well, I think a major reconstitution of the Ukrainian Air Force will be on the short list as well, along with uh, static air defenses from the ground. But uh, we do have a ton of hands. Uh, I'll go to Colby next. Thank you so much. No, you're fine. Um, And please come back anytime. I haven't seen you in the past, but we're happy to have new speakers anytime and happy to have questions. Um, I lost track of the order. I know Colby, I think, wanted to respond to Jane's question. And uh, then I guess it was June next. Thanks. Um, General Hurtling is, uh, of course, correct. Patriot is not the right solution for Ukraine. It is not a realistic solution. It's not going to happen if we're being honest with ourselves. The United States is not going to sell Patriot to Ukraine. The United States will not send Patriot operated by American soldiers to Ukraine. Neither of those are going to happen. Um, instead, the president announced that uh, they planned on providing Ukraine with NASAMS, which is a system that Ukraine has been asking to buy since the war started. Um, and uh, it's good to see that that decision has finally been taken. But uh, it's, it's very unfortunate that it took this long to happen um, because it should have happened immediately. Um, beyond that, um, we're, there's still a lot being left on the table. Uh, what the United States can do is give Patriots to Greece, and then Greece can give S-300s to Ukraine. This is another thing that should have happened immediately, and it's a catastrophic failure of the United States State and Defense Departments that this has not been orchestrated yet, um, because there is no reason why Greece would not say yes to this deal, because uh, Patriot is a very significant upgrade over S-300, and I'm sure the Greeks would be thrilled uh, to have Patriots instead of the S-300, um, yet for whatever reason, um, probably has something to do with, uh, you know, uh, the necessity of maintaining um, relations with uh, Turkey as well. Um, but, uh, you know, these are the complicated questions that uh, our elected officials are supposed to be able to, to weave through. Um, so I'll, uh, I'm, I'm going to take issue with the, the current leadership at the State Department that this has not been able to be achieved that uh, those Greek S-300s are still not in Ukrainian hands because that would make a very significant difference because the Greeks have a uh, fairly significant quantity of uh, S-300 batteries that Ukraine could immediately use, whereas uh, Ukraine, uh, even if the United States is willing to provide patriots, again, would take many, many more months um, for those to be operational. So NASAMS is a good interim solution because it's an easier system for them to integrate um, and again, Ukraine itself has been asking for this specific system for some time now. Um, so that's good. As far as Iron Dome is concerned, Iron Dome is not a system that would actually help Ukraine. Um, it's designed for a different 
envelope of threats uh, than the ones that Ukraine is currently facing. Um, as far as Israeli systems go, David's sling is the system that uh, would address Ukrainian needs. But again, uh, Israel is not selling any of these systems um, to Ukraine because, as Patrick stated, um, sale of these systems would require approval from the United States government and the Israeli government themselves uh, are not willing to part with these systems um, for numerous different reasons. Again, Israel's small country doesn't have a bunch of spares sitting in a warehouse that they could um, sell to another country at a moment's notice. Um, they use these systems themselves to defend their own country against the very vast spectrum of threats that uh, that they face themselves. Um, so it's not really feasible for them to be selling um, the systems to uh, to other countries, even if they wanted to. Um, as far as, you know, after the war is over, whether um, the technology could be potentially licensed, that's a different situation, maybe, but um, that's, you know, a little far down the road. Um, the focus, I think, should still be just on getting the right weapons to Ukraine in timely fashion um, so that they can make an immediate impact on the battlefield. And uh, the systems that they need hasn't changed much since the beginning of the war. More artillery. Um, and it's great that, you know, high Mars are finally coming along and uh, and more longer range and higher altitude air defense are uh, remain two very big priorities, along with just um, general logistics support is something that uh, is still very severely uh, lacking. Uh, did we send some Patriot batteries to Europe since February? I thought we did, but maybe we sent them to Poland or Romania. I'm guessing probably Poland to back up some of our boots on the ground there um, uh, yes we deployed several in yeah. okay so yeah um getting a few to greece or maybe losing a few on the way between poland somewhere in greece uh isn't entirely out of the question inventories are hard to keep up with aren't they i think we also sent batteries to germany and slovakia if i remember correct the u.s sent to germany and then uh, germany and the netherlands i believe sent to slovakia and then Poland agreed to patrol their airspace as well, which is how uh, Ukraine's getting more MiGs. I I just hope and pray somebody pulled a little three-card money at the unload port, and uh, there are things happening that we're totally unaware of. Uh, Jude, go ahead. But I agree with you, Colby. Uh, if, if we haven't managed to grease the skids on getting some Patriots to Greece, no pun intended, uh, that's a significant failure of our diplomatic ability. June. Yeah, so Patrick, uh, how do you, you know, we were talking about the air cap and how it was mixed, you know, uh, you know, uh, each side is, is, is uh, flying sorties, usually very low, very dumb bombs, very inaccurate. How, how does that, how does that, how would you say that's affecting uh, both sides right now, and then as we move into the, if there is a, there will be a counteroffensive, but someday, presumably, you know, they would, you know, you don't, you'd almost think they'd have to have some sort of support. You're talking about the use of unguided munitions for uh, airstrikes? Well, well, I'm just talking about having air support, fixed wing or helicopter, uh, you know, uh, you know, once the, if there is a, uh, a maneuver, uh, 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 I can't think of the word, you know, like a maneuver, uh, counter strike, you know, where there's going to be, have to be some maneuver and you want to, you know, usually, I mean, it's really for the one thing that's really interesting about this war is nobody has any air superiority really. That's right. You know, and it's just, and that's, what's making it so barbaric. So, you know, how do you see that playing out maybe towards, you know, the point where they can be in a posture to make that kind of a move? And, and and that also ties in with needing to have those forces that we talked about earlier, you know, the, the, the more experienced forces that have suffered high le levels of attrition. Well, that's, and you're right. Nobody has been able to attain or, or maintain air superiority, let alone air supremacy. And so what we're seeing is a reversion to almost a world war one style battlefield where artillery becomes the main support arm for ground operations. And that's why we're seeing the primacy of artillery both on, on both sides, the Russian and, and Ukrainian. I don't see that changing uh, it, when and if Ukraine is, is given the opportunity to go in the counteroffensive. I think artillery is going to remain their, their primary support arm. If 
you know, whatever portion of the Ukrainian Air Force is still in operation, God bless those guys. I, I didn't think they'd last this long. They are not going to be sufficient to provide all the ground support that the, those advancing Ukrainian units are going to need. So I think we are going to continue to see artillery play the, the major role, which is why the Ukrainians rightly have, and I wish CJ was here, he, he'll be all over this. Uh, they have been all over asking for self-propelled artillery as opposed to tow. Uh, obviously, that self-propelled guns can keep up with uh, advancing units much more readily than, tow- than towed artillery can. But yeah, I, I, if it gets to that point, when and if, I think I think it's still possible. I, I, unlike some, I don't think this war is decided yet. So if it gets to that point, I think artillery is, is going to remain the uh, main support arm. And I think that is what a, both armies are going to be basing a lot of their doctrine off of going forward. I don't think uh, anyone's going to attain or maintain air superiority unless the Russians were to throw their entire air force in now and really begin a, a concentrated air campaign. And if they did, I think they'd take serious losses, which is why they, I suspect they haven't done it. Do they have the staff for that? I mean, they're putting in, I'm thinking of the Wagner pilot that was a like retired general working on contract. I... That's right. The question is, they on, on paper, they have the planes, but do they have the planes in you know operational condition? Do they have the air crew? Do they have the ground crew? Do they have the munitions load? Nobody knows. Uh, if they do, the reason they're not using them is they're going to take huge casualties because the Russians don't mount dedicated wild weasel units. You know, that's a conversation for another time. Um, but there's a capability gap in the Russian Air Force that may be, you know, ha- happening in conjunction with a person with a personnel gap and, and a readiness gap that is effectively sidelining large portions of the Russian Air Force. Ryan, you're hot, Mike and brother. I don't think it's me. I think it's June. Sorry, maybe it is me, Andrew. Hey, th- thanks for the answer, Patrick. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hitting the pillow, man. So uh, appreciate you guys. Thanks for everything you do. All the insight. Uh, catch you on the flip side in the morning, brother. Thank you, June. Yeah, have a good one, June. Good night, June. Uh, forgive me. There are four hands up at the moment. I have no idea what the order was. I think it was probably dry fly bin. Uh, John. You can uh, slap fight with them if you want. No, I put a couple comments about naysayers. They can go ahead if they like. We really need more emojis in this. Like four emojis kind of just cuts out all the fun. We need a thumbs up and a thumbs down, among others. Yeah, we we need a whole bunch of stuff on Twitter. I would just go for <laughs> platform stability at this point in time. Um, if you want to chime in on naysayers. You're a rocket guy, and I know nothing about NASAMs, so have at it, and then we'll work through the rest. All right. Thanks, Ryan. So regarding NASAMs, um, there are some particular benefits to it. Um, one is it comes – there is a version of it that comes in an interim – an integrally. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with, with English Integrally. Today. We got Integrally. Uh, integrally mobile platform specifically there's a launcher on a Humvee it's essentially they took a Humvee and they mounted the NASAMS launcher on the back and so there's an integrally you know mobile version of the launcher um, which you know Patriot I mean you hook it up to the back of a truck um, but you know this Humvee based system you know it's inherently lighter and more mobile and also in terms of the projectiles that it can fire um, I believe the three it supports are the surface launched um, AIM-9, the Sidewinders, the um, the SLAM Rams, surface launched AM Rams, the AM the AIM one twenties, um, and then it also supports the German Iris T missiles, and the Germans have already said they're going to provide those. So by you know sending the NASAMs, they will be able to launch the Iris T missiles that they're receiving. I believe the Germans are also sending dedicated Iris T launchers as well. You know, they can launch some of those missiles off their NASAMS launcher. The other benefit is that NASAMS, I'm not, I don't want to say it's unique, but it's one of, the, one of the few systems that can truly do this. It's a completely dispersed and distributed platform. None of the assets in the system, be it the launchers, the radar, or the command center, have to be clustered to any extent. Within a certain radius of one another, they can all just be scattered all over the place, you know, in individual locations. So a strike on one is guaranteed if you've properly dispersed it. A strike on them, you know, with a single projectile 
is guaranteed to kill at most one unit of the system. You cannot, you know, take out the whole system with, you know, cluster munitions because you can disperse them all far enough apart and individually that, you know, you can't just kill the whole system at once, you know, with a spread of cluster munitions, you know, like you potentially could correct me. I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure there is some clustering involved with the Patriots to some extent. Um, so that's a potential advantage. I think that's going to be like a static launch pad as well. And if all these NASAMS components are on wheels, you can essentially shuffle the deck every 24 hours or periodically, whatever, you know, people on the ground determine uh, yeah. best fit and, you know, put those things in a different field cyclically. Yeah. And you never know if you're shooting the right spot or not, unless you have live eyes on the ground in that moment. And if you've got them dispersed, like you're saying, you know, every... 30 kilometers, you have a missile battery and then a radar and then a missile battery and a radar. Even if they take out a missile battery or a radar, there's another one 30 kilometers away and they can all talk to each other and you've got kind of a mesh network. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the mobility aspect there, you know, they can more effectively uh, evade, you know, Russian suppression of enemy air defense missions, you know, the wild weasel runs. Um, the other thing is that I believe NASAMS are already compatible with some of the radars that we've already sent them that are already in theater. So it simplifies you know, the logistics there. And as uh, General Hurtling covered in this thread, you know, it's, it's a less complex system, you know, it's, you know, smaller, you know, more easily to, you know, uh, to move around both in the field and from a logistics standpoint, it's, you know, faster to train on. So there, there's a number of advantages. The only real disadvantage is that, you know, it only has a maximum range of 30 kilometers, uh, you know, for the projectiles versus, you know, Patriots, you know, 90 to 120 kilometers. Um, that's really the only downside. And I mean, I don't know what the availability is on them. So Norway, they only have four batteries. A couple other countries have batteries, but the numbers of the number of launchers per battery differs wildly between countries. Um, I think the Norwegians can send maybe up to two from what I've read. So that's 18 launchers, I believe, nine launchers per battery. So we will probably, I don't know where they're manufactured I, I suspect it's probably norway as well we might have to you know pour some serious money into this to ramp up production to get enough of these and regarding briefly regarding the greek s 300s um the greeks have a bizarrely large number of them they have um a full regiment which is 32 which is you know complete 32 launchers like 170 uh, missiles um which again is shockingly large considered they've never used them once for anything i think they just have them sitting in a warehouse on crete um so yeah i suspect they will give them up because you know turkey's right there but we need to you know arrange a deal to send them patriots or something for the love of god this is just silly at this point uh ben a dry fly your hand went down i don't know if uh, that was intentional or not so we'll go ben then auntie and okay ben dry fly auntie good morning everyone um i had a question for Pat uh, patrick uh, it relates to um geometry because i'm an idiot when it comes to military stuff and i think of it in mathematic terms um is the the shortening of the front a good thing or a bad thing uh with the the reduction of the size of the of the pockets in the in the donbass um and is it more of a good thing for the russians who have less men or more of a good thing for them for the ukrainians who have more men well, if they were to evacuate that pocket completely, uh, it would free up a, a considerable number of Ukrainian troops for, the, for their line. But again, it would also free up a considerable, considerable number of Russians. From a tactical standpoint, it would also eliminate the ability of the Russians to assault Ukrainian positions from multiple sides. So, yeah, it, 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 in my view, it, it, would, it would benefit the Ukrainians more than the Russians. But again, that's... Uh, I, I look at it from a minimizing risk and refusing to play the Russians' game. Thank you. I believe we have, is it anti then Dryfly? Thank you. So, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, I've been uh, already a couple of days ago, I did some reading up on your latest, uh, latest article on your Substack, and uh, I would also recommend to everyone to uh, check out Patrick's Substack. There's really great uh, reading material there. So I was wondering, uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, so this this going to be a softball. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about 
about the article and what do you actually think that the uh, that uh, would be possible to uh, achieve by let's say making uh, th- doing unconventional actions uh, in, in the high seas <laughs> thank you for that Anthony. Um, for people who don't know I, I wrote an article it was basically a what if on uh, Ukraine it- issuing letters of mark and reprisal to go after these uh, specifically these Russian ships transporting stolen grain into Syria or uh, but, you know or other Russian flag vessels specifically tankers who are carrying uh, high value cargo like oil the reality is you could do it uh, Ukrainian ambassadors could issue these letters of mark they sh- they could issue them to non-Ukrainian flag vessels who, when on, when operating in, in a privateer capacity, would be required to run up the Ukrainian flag, um, and they would revert to being auxiliary members of the Ukrainian Navy. Uh, then they, assuming they had uh, the correct ship, would then board, seize, take her a prize to go back to the 17th century lingo, and then bring her into port for adjudication by a prize court. And this is all but this has all happened before. It is something that largely went out with the treat with the uh, Paris Treaty of 1856, but most nations are no longer signatories of that. Uh, the U.S. never signed. Imperial Russia signed, but Ukraine did not. Uh, January hot making. There we go. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, you could do this. How effective would it be? I don't know. No one knows. Uh, would it be a, a great way to harass the Russians? Yes. And and that's the goal. The goal is to harass the Russians to make their trade a little bit more difficult. And if you were really smart about it, and I mentioned this in the article, if you seize these grain ships and if you seize one that's you know carrying stolen grain from Russia but isn't Russian flagged, you may be able to seize the cargo and then just let the ship go. It depends on what the... Uh, terms of the letter of mark uh, specify you sail it into egypt you think an egyptian prize court you'd have to set one up do you think an egyptian prize court is going to turn away stolen grain hell no they're worried about food right you seize an oil tanker sail it <laughs> sail it into the united states or is the u.s going to turn away oil right now or japan or south korea hell no there um so there are ways you, you could get not only very annoying to vlad about this but also very smart in where you decide to come in and, you know, dispose of this cargo and potentially the vessel, whether or not it's Russian flag. And it's just a way to, it's just a way to annoy them. It's a way to make it hurt a little bit more. And it costs Ukraine basically nothing uh, to do it. I mean, what, what are the Russians going to do? Declare war on them and invade? At this point, they've got nothing to lose. Yeah. And also let's be honest, the, uh, it really shouldn't uh, take much in the way of uh resources or uh, capability to set up uh, small vessels that could uh, be effective at this. I mean, we, we don't, we only have to look at the uh, pirates in Somalia to uh, realize that uh, it doesn't take that much to uh, become aggressive in, on, on the, uh, on the seas. Well, that's right. And there, and there are plenty of ex Navy personnel from, you know, NATO countries that would jump at the chance to do it. I think who are generally annoyed and, you know, what is it? What does a cargo ship and a cargo of grain or oil or whatever go for these days? Well, it's a considerable amount. You know, that, that people need to remember, all this stuff gets sold, and the privateer, this is the incentive to do this, keeps all or most of the proceeds. And, you know, sometimes a part of it goes back to the issuing government and the, uh, and the prize court. But the privateer keeps the bulk of the sale, which is the incentive for private citizens. And these are private citizens to go and do this. So, yeah, it, it's just another way to make it hurt for them. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate softball. <laughs> uh, ben, I believe, then dry fly or dry fly then Ben. I can't remember. Uh, I just had a very quick reply for Patrick. Um, I mean, I know you're laughing, but at the same time, we have a lot more uh, boats on the sea, ships on the sea than uh, than the Russians do. So we would hurt a lot more. We're a much bigger target than they are. Are you talking about uh, Ukrainian boats? Uh, if we're starting piracy or corsair um, ship where they might attack anything no uh, well it th- there is a dist- and of course the russians would call it piracy but the distinction there is that these people are, would be specifically authorized by the ukrainian government to seize either russian ships or russian cargoes 
it, it's basically a, a licensed a licensed form of piracy. Uh, there's there's precedent here as well. There was a, there a Russian flagship that was interdicted in Greek waters, I believe, as it was approaching either Turkey or Egypt. Um, they detained it for a number of days. It was already having mechanical issues, so it really couldn't run in the first place. Uh, that said, they intercepted it, detained it until they could determine who exactly in Russia owned it because they thought it might fall under the sanctions. Uh, they determined that it was owned by a bank that did not fall under sanctions. But in the meantime, they also ascertained that the cargo it was carrying was Iranian oil. Uh, the U.S. State Department or the Commerce Department then interjected and claimed or took ownership of that cargo. They offloaded it onto an alternate ship that was not broken down and sailed that oil back to the U.S. Uh, Iran, shit a brick, excuse my French. Uh, but that said, there's precedent here. These kind of things can be managed. And I don't think respectfully that Russia's going to be able to do anything but whine and complain. Okay, thanks for the answer. Could I ask a quick follow-up on that? Sure. Dude, we can ask questions about piracy all day. This is awesome. I know. I'm right. It's really fantastic. So the question is, both for Patrick and for anybody else on here who wants to take a shot at this, Mike, I love the privateer idea so much. There, there are not words to describe how much I love it. But my, my concern is that um, there is a Russian naval squadron in the Mediterranean, and I'm reasonably confident that if the Ukrainians enlist privateers, you know, the Russians will send you know the Marshal Ustinov and Baryag after them, and it's going to get real spicy really quickly. Depending, that's right. Go ahead. But the trick to this is flying false colors is a legitimate ruse de guerre going back to the age of sail. So what you do is you you have non-Ukrainians who are authorized by their letter of mark uh, sailing on a non-Ukrainian flagged ship. And they sail their non-Ukrainian flagged ship with their non-Ukrainian flag up to the moment of attack, at which point they would be required to raise the Ukrainian naval ensign and identify themselves as an auxiliary member of the Ukrainian Navy, and only then do they attack. So it makes it, it makes the Russians' job much harder for them. Now, the Russians could, of course, start convoying, which makes the whole thing a little bit more difficult. But in that, in that event, you've, you've annoyed the Russians so much that they're having to go out of their way and change their operational patterns, which is almost good enough in and of itself, because that's going to suck away their naval assets, which are never that good to begin with. And the spectacle of a few of them breaking down in the med is something that warms my heart. Uh, but, but there are ways to do this. Uh, the the, uh, the other two points I would add is that it would be really interesting if, you know, to try and see if you could stretch the Russian Navy thin enough that it would force them to maybe pull some of their surface combatants out of the Black Sea. Because <clears throat> I'm pretty sure once they leave, they cannot get back in. Um, so, or... Mantra is weird. Fair enough. the uh, The second point was uh, w we need to figure out when we're going to have the have the conversation about um, uh, skirting around Montro by uh, with some creative use of corporate shell companies and sh uh, shelling uh, ships to various different companies. We need to have that conversation on here sometime. I, I like the idea of shelling ships quite well. Patrick, you had something you want to say? Oh, I was just going to say absolutely. Turkey's been able to use Montro to screw up this entire thing from a NATO perspective. The fact that we're not leaning them on, leaning on them over this is beyond me. But just for you know, shits and giggles, imagine what you could do if you loaded up a just a merchant ship with a bunch of ground-launched anti-ship and go privateering. So, so the couple of Ukra a couple of Russian merchantmen full of grain have a destroyer with them. Oh, that's too bad for that destroyer. We've saw we've seen how well they do against ground launched anti ship missile. Now, granted, it'd be a little bit of a job to rig the whole thing up, but you know, if you if people are game, I, you know, I think they should be allowed to try it. Frankly, if the Russians can figure out how to mount a tour on the back of a Grigorovich, then we can figure out how to put some harpoons, you know, in a merchant ship.